Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This summer, we are back in the book of Psalms. John Calvin rather famously wrote that the Psalms are an anatomy of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. The Psalms sing high joys for salvation and the beauty of this world, and yet meet us in the low places as we cry out for justice and weep over the sorrowful state of this world. All of life, absolutely all of it, is invited to be laid before our Lord in the Psalms, these prayers and songs to God. So we'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy this sermon, and God bless. Uh, Lord, we do thank you for this book of Psalms. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that uh, as uh, Calvin sort of famously said, that it shows the anatomy of the soul. All aspects of our lives are laid bare before you. Um, God, I pray that as we turn to it, we would see how beautiful it is that you desire all of us. Uh, you desire us to bring every aspect of us before you. And God, that we would respond in such a way. Uh, Lord, uh, move in us, even as we consider this Psalm, Psalm 57, that we might love you with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength and might love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, so we are back in the Psalms, and we are actually picking up right where we left off last summer. Um, sort of both, sort of in terms of numbers, we're just jumping onto the next one, and actually thematically, it's sort of picking up where we left off. Um, for many of us, this is actually our ninth summer in the Psalms together. Uh, I actually came as your pastor the last Sunday in June in 2015, and so in two weeks, I will have been here for eight years with you, and we just started that sun, that first Sunday on Psalm 1 for the summers, and so we're back in the Psalms for the summers, and we're on Psalm 57. I wanted to explain to you, and I kind of do this at the beginning of every summer, just why we do that. You know, we kind of have a diet of Scripture. If you're around for a little while, you'll get the, the Old Testament, the New Testament in the fall. You'll get the Gospels around Advent, really often through uh, Easter. You'll have a series in the Easter tide, and then we'll have the Psalms. And the idea is you're getting a, a diet of Scripture. But we go back to the Psalms every summer for a few reasons. I'm just going to say this. Honestly, one of them is so practical. So many people are not around in the summertime. I mean, lots of educators here at this church and lots of reasons why people are on vacation. There's lots of people that are gone even this Sunday. And if you're gone for a week or you're gone for two, and you're doing that in a, in a text that is really making an argument, you're actually going to miss something of the argument of that book, right? But for the most part, the Psalms, they give you a, a singular Psalm. And if you, if you miss that one Psalm, you're not like at the next week, you're like scratching your head going, what's happening? You're able to jump back in. Another practical reason is that I'm gone sometimes. Um, I'm actually going I'm, I'm to be here next Sunday, but, but I am gone this coming week. I'm down in, in Memphis for our denomination's national gathering of pastors and elders and stuff. And, uh, and so I'm gone sometimes and it, and it allows other people to kind of jump in with the Psalm and, and it kind of works easily to fill spots like that. So there's some practical reasons for why we do this. But here's, here's the other reasons. The psalm book has always been the main prayer book of God's people. Um, 
It has been the way that God's people offer their voices up and their hearts and their whole selves up to God. Um, and that has always been the case. I've uh, just actually mentioned in, in my prayer that um, John Calvin famously called the Psalms the anatomy of the soul. It's just the deep places of our beings offered up to God and every aspect of them. Um, the fourth reason is kind of similar. Um, and that's that it's a songbook. It's a prayer book, but it's a songbook. And I want you to think with me just for a moment about the songs that really resonate with you. They're the songs that kind of met you at a place that was really, really deep and tragic and it sort of gave an expression to what you were feeling. Or you were just, you know, driving down, the windows are down at summertime and you're listening to summertime and the lives easy. You're like, this is perfect. It's just meeting you right where you are. And that's just kind of how, how it works. Psalms, songs kind of give, give expression to that part of your soul that's also being expressed in the Psalms. So they work together. Here's, here's what's going on in the Psalms in this kind of way. God wants every single aspect of you. I mean, like he wants all of it. And so you can find Psalms um, that, that give voice to your celebrations, the things that you're really, really excited about. Maybe it's just the beauty of a day like today, and you say, praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him. Or you can find psalms that actually speak of this dynamic of having enemies that are chasing after you, and you are full of fear, and you need saving. Or you have psalms that um, arise from within the, the places of doubt. You know, where are you, O oh God? Why have you hidden your face from me? What's going on? Why are you engaging in the world like this? Um, there are psalms that talk about the beauty of life, uh, your anguish over ongoing sin in yourself or systemic sin in the world. Um, they give voice to depression. Actually, if any of you, I, I noticed this in the, in the um, reading just this morning um, from Psalm 33 in the lectionary. If, you guys, if anyone read the lectionary, it mentioned that God bottles up the waters of the oceans, the waters of the seas. Well, that phrase, it's actually a little bit different word, but it's a similar phrase, is found also in Psalm 56, where it says, the Lord bottles up your tears. If you put those together, the Lord has a keen sense that your tears can be so overwhelming that they need to be actually bottled up and they can be actually be compared to a whole ocean of them. I mean, I'm telling you that the Psalms span every single experience that you have. And that's partly why they've been given music and melody and all. And it's also partly why it has been the prayer book, the devotional book of God's people. And he knows what we're going through and he longs for every single part of us to be brought before him. Okay, I want to tell you about someone and then we're going to jump into Psalm 57. So um, at the height of the Cold War, late 70s, there was a man, Anatola Skyransky. I think that's the way, right way to pronounce his name. And he was arrested by the KGB, okay? Here's what had happened. This man was an, uh, uh, an amazing mathematician. And he had actually gone to the, the, the top sort of tech college in Moscow. And he was also Jewish. And his dad was, a, was an avid, avid communist. Actually, during his youth, he went to camps where he was just trained in sort of thinking, Soviet thinking. And yet, through his education and all, he began to sort of push against that and rebel against that. And, um, and so, uh, let me, Josh, I have all my music here too. 
I did make sure I printed out my sermon this week. Since last week, it didn't, it didn't happen. I guess we were out of toner, but I didn't know that when I pressed print. So, so he gets this job out of, out of college at um, the Institute for Oil and Gas. And he's like a top, top level mathematician. Um, and yet he becomes this dissident. He starts actually uh, pushing against Soviet communism. And you know what happens when that, when that takes place? Um, he gets arrested by the KGB in 1977. And he's actually sentenced to 13 years in a Soviet gulag, a Soviet prison camp. And um, from morning to evening, this man, Skarinsky, read and studied all 150 psalms in the Hebrew. Um, and, he, and I guess what, how he approached it is, he, and he said this in a letter, what does this give me? This is his quote. Gradually, my feeling of great loss and sorrow changes to one of bright hopes. He's in a Soviet gulag, and every day he's studying the psalms. And somehow in the midst of that situation, his sorrow and all that is changing to a, a place of hope. Um, this is what happened. Uh, one day the guards take away his psalter, his psalm book from him, and he laid in the snow, refusing to move until they returned it. That's how precious the psalms were to him in the midst of that situation. Uh, I read that in, during the years in prison, his wife traveled around the world campaigning for his relief, release and actually accepted honorary an honorary degree on his behalf. But this is what he uh, finally wrote. It says, um, in a lonely cell in Christopol prison, locked alone with the Psalms of David, I found expression for my innermost feelings in the outpourings of the King of Israel thousands of years ago. He's finding the expression for what he's feeling in the middle of a Soviet camp from someone so long ago writing in Soviet, or sorry, in ancient Israel. And I'm suggesting to you that if you spend time in the Psalms, you will have the exact same experience. You'll be amazed at how God shows up to you right where you are through these ancient Psalms, these ancient prayers. Um, so here in Psalm 57, I want to suggest to you that this Psalm is kind of broken up into two sections. Maybe turn with me, turn with me and you can see them. Look with me at verse 5. It says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over the earth. And then if you turn the page, verse 11, listen to this. It says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. It's the same words, right? I love it when, when the Bible does this for us. It just breaks it down for us, okay? And so we're going to have kind of two points, and the first point is going to be much longer than the, the second point. But here's, my, here's what I want to do. I want us to look at this first little section and see this, that we have a need for salvation. And then the second se se section, which is actually following on this, is sort of a need for song, okay? A need for salvation, a need for song. So first, a need for salvation. Well, if you look at this, the first uh, line of verse 1 is this. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. Now what you might immediately want to ask is, why is he crying out for mercy? 
Now, we just sang a long song, Psalm 51, on crying out for mercy for our sin, the way that we've acted in rebellion against God. And that's certainly something that has, uh, we cry out for a lot, and the Psalms invite us to do that, and the Bible invites us to do that. Um, but, but the first title part of our psalm actually gives us a clue into why he's crying out for mercy. Um, it says uh, two things that I want you to see. One, it says that it was to be sung to the tune, Do Not Destroy, which I am totally convinced uh, is like a heavy metal screamo tune, right? Like, do not destroy, um, that kind of thing. Um, and then it's actually said to be a, a miktam of David. We actually don't know what that word means, a miktam. Um, there's a lot of little words like that. In fact, like the word selah that you sometimes see in the Psalms, we don't totally know why, what that means. We think it means pause or peace, but that's actually why it's not translated. We don't translate it because we're not totally convinced of what it means. Miktam is the same thing. We actually don't totally know what miktam means, but it's a genre and it's probably the screamo genre, right? Um, but the other thing that we learn is that David is in a cave because he's been fleeing from Saul. Okay, um, what we have is David is crying out for mercy because he is actually worried about possibly being destroyed, right? Do not destroy. Um, he's crying out from a place of refuge, the cave, and he's crying out because somebody's after him, King Saul. Now, here's what I want to suggest to you, and I want to, I want to do it this way. I want to suggest to you that part of what he's crying out for mercy from is actually other people. And then I actually want, to cons- I want you to consider this, and this is going to, we're going to get to this eventually, but I want us to consider that he's also crying out for this need for mercy and salvation from even the places where he takes refuge. I hope you'll, you'll understand what I mean by that in a little bit. Okay, first, salvation from others. Here's what I think is tempting when you come to the Bible. I think it's tempting when you come to the Bible to uh, approach it and think that all it has to do with is what's in your heart or within your soul uh, or within your head, right, your mind. Um, And there's good reasons for why we kind of approach the Bible like this. One is the Bible is a religious text. And we know that religion has to do with your soul and your heart and What's going on in the unseen? The other thing is that we're told, the the world that we live in at large tells you your religion is private. It's just for you inside of your closet. Maybe it's on Sunday mornings, but once you leave that door, don't take it with you into public places at least. Don't invite it into your work or certainly don't let it influence your politics or your policy or any of that kind of thing. Religion is just for you and sort of your own private place. Um, that could not be further from the case from what the Bible teaches, actually. The Bible opens up from the very beginning and says, God made all things. He's over, it, it begins the idea of religion as saying it's all creation. All of it exists for him, and it's made by him, and it's declared good for him, and all of it's to be offered up to him. Everything that you do is offered up to God. So it kind of pushes against that from the beginning. Um, But also what we see is that actually rebellion against God, too, sin, is a very physical thing, right? What we're told is that Adam and Eve, these first parents in the garden, actually took something. 
that was their rebellion. It wasn't just a rebellion in the heart. It was actually a physical rebellion that was taking place. It's a physical thing that's going on. Okay, so here's what I'm suggesting to you. We shouldn't just think that mercy is only for the sort of the, the inner parts of the hearts. That's true. That's part of it. But there's also this thing that we need salvation from the physical world. And sometimes that exists as other people. David is fleeing from Saul. Salvation needs to happen sometimes just from other people specifically, okay? Um, look, at, look, look with me down at verse 3, okay? Um, verse 3, he will send from the heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Him who tramples on me. So there's a specific enemy in view here. Um, but we, we also get in this psalm that it's not just a specific enemy, but there's also this idea that there's generally other people, right? Um, physical in the flesh people that he needs saving from. Verse, uh, verse four, look at this. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. Kids, how, how you know, you, you guys know how to read. How do, you, how do you distinguish between a singular and a plural? One thing and two things in words. Normally an S, right? You put an S at the end of a word. It's like pastor or pastors, right? Well, here it's not. He's not just talking about one person. He's like a, bunch, a whole group of people, okay? Um, it says the children of man, children, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Okay. So David's fleeing from Saul, but it seems also that there's whole groups of people that are after him. Now I want you to think about this with me. Do you all remember where we left off last summer in the Psalms? Come on, this is a, in some ways this is an easy, yes, 56. Okay, on some level that's actually a really easy answer. On, on another level I understand that that's like a whole long time ago and you don't remember. It's fine. Um, but here's what was happening last summer in the Psalms, is that again and again and again, David was saying, Lord, meet me in my distress. Lord, there's somebody coming after me. I need you to show up. This is a scary situation. So let me remind you a little bit. Psalm 52 was written in response to Doeg the Edomite. You might maybe remember Doeg the Edomite. That dude was bad, bad. Um, he betrayed David when David was with Ahimelech, the priest. And he went and told Saul about it. And then Do- Doeg led, um, led the people to go slaughter Ahimelech and 84 priests along with their families. Bad dude. Okay. Um, maybe you remember how Psalm 54 um, told us about the betrayal of the Ziphites. I know there's lots of names like that in the Bible. It's kind of hard to remember all of them. But um, part of what you're supposed to be thinking about there is that those were the people around actually David. David. David should have found protection from them, and he didn't. He was actually betrayed. A whole group of people. Doag, one guy who's kind of leading a revolt against David and killing other people, he's leading it. But now there's a whole group of people. Um, maybe you remember, actually, in Psalm 56, maybe you'll remember this as I mentioned this. Psalm 56 is the psalm where David recounts the story how he goes um, to the town of Gath, which is in Philistia, which would have made a lot of sense for him to go into an enemy territory. So Saul went to follow him there. But they recognize him when he's there. And what does he do? He acts like he's gone mad. And he escapes. He's really creative in how he escapes. He acts like he's gone mad. Here's what I'm saying. Is that just here in, these, in the 50s of the Psalms, what you have is this, 
individuals who are enemies, whole groups of people who are enemies, the Ziphites and the Philistines. You have, of course, Saul and you have uh, Doeg. Um, maybe you actually remember this. that In Psalm 56, one of the things that it says is, what can flesh do to me? I mean, if God's for me, what can other people do to me? And, and we had thought about um, how pandemics and lockdowns and massive increases in depression, all these sorts of things make us go, man, the flesh can do a lot. And David says, you know what? With the Lord, you are still safe. You're still safe. His mercy is for you. His salvation is for you. Okay. Um, so here's what I'm trying to point out, is that here in this passage, at least, there's this dynamic of, of seeking salvation from a specific individual and also from groups of people. And that seems kind of basic. Um, but I want you to think about this, okay? Think about the singular person that David is seeking salvation from, Saul. Many of you know this. Saul was actually anointed by God, right, by Samuel, to be the king. He was put in that place of power to exercise that power for the good of those who were under him. David should have found refuge under Saul and his power. Instead, he's fleeing from him. Um, Saul should have had David's best interest in mind. Um, and the fact is, is that that's actually one of the great enemies that so many people experience in the world. Somebody who should have actually had your best interest in mind and abuses that power. Um, many people can recount about how the most scarring thing is there in their life was how a teacher spoke to them or how a parent abused them how they demeaned them with their words. Um, so many, so many people know how absolutely scarring it is to have a, have a father particularly. And I think that's partly why the instructions for fathers in the New Testament are don't provoke your children to anger, to wrath. is because the father says, you know what, kid? The Bible tells you to honor and obey me. And I'm going to do anything I can to make sure you do it. And you know how utterly crushing that can be. One person, one person in power that has been put there properly can absolutely actually be your worst enemy. Some of you know how often this takes place in the context of a boss. You show up, you put your time in, and yet nothing is ever right. Um, so many people can speak to the, to the dynamics of, of pastors who abuse their authority, their place. And they crush others, or they spiritually abuse others, or they sexually abuse others. Um, it's doubtful that many people have been like Saul to you. They've been actually out to kill you, and sought you, and sought where you were hiding in the cave. But it's actually very likely that most of us have actually experienced somebody who's over us, who's abused that authority. And they have been enemies of God and enemies of you. And this psalm is telling you, you can say, Lord, they're like lions. They're out to get me. Save me from this physical enemy. Um, but it's also groups of people. And I think this is actually really helpful too. Because it's true that, that sin is, all, is, is something that's inside of us and oftentimes works itself out in ways that are 
um, harmful to others. But sin is not just always personal, but it also can be actually be systemic and it can be social. And there could be sins that are uh, that uh, sins that whole groups of people grab onto. They can be collective. Um, sins can have systemic effects. Um, systems or groups of people can be used together to harm an individual or harm another whole group of people. Um, that's something that's true in the Bible. Um, we all know right now that 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 Putin is largely leading the war against Ukraine, but it's not just Putin, and everybody knows that. There's all kinds of other people involved, right? Um, this week, I spent some time, a little while, watching this new documentary on Prime Video called Shiny Happy People. I don't know if any of y'all have seen this. Many of you probably should see it, but it's sort of telling some of the story of the Duggar family, that huge family that had like 19 kids that was on TLC uh, quite a few years back. And if you know that their their oldest, Josh Duggar, is in prison and uh, was so because of um, promulgating uh, content, online content that he shouldn't have had and, and all of that. But the story is not just about Josh or about his father, Jim Bob, or about his mother or about this huge family. What is, I mean, it seems like the big thing that it's about is, is the Institute for Biblical Life Principles. I mean, it has the word Bible in it. It's this huge organization, largely, of course, run by Bill Gothard. Uh, it's a whole system, and it's a whole system that has so often built abusive situations, time and time and time again. What I'm suggesting to you is this passage is saying that enemies can be individuals and they can be whole groups of people, and the Bible itself is saying, they're la- lay this before the Lord and ask him to save. Ask him to show up. Ask him to save. Ask him to do something about it. I need salvation, Lord, from this authority who's abusing it. I need salvation, Lord, from this whole group of Christians. Okay, um, let me shift a little bit. What I'm suggesting to you is that part of the thing that's saying, be merciful to me, save me, is from actually just really physical people, individuals and groups. I think that's a big part of what's been being said here. But I also think there's this really little detail here that we would, um, we would lose something if we skimmed over. So verse 1, let me read it again for you. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Here's the thing. What we learned from that title is that David is in the cave. A little FYI, actually, in Hebrew, the title is always the first verse. So that would be verse 2 in Hebrew. But um, the cave, the cave, is in the midst of actually a whole series of limestone caves. In fact, um, there is a national park in Israel now that is called the Park of Adullam. And you know how big it is? It's 12,000 acres. It's a huge park, uh, and there's hiking trails and biking trails, and there's four different archaeological sites. But the thing you need to understand is that the Cave of Agilom wasn't just some tiny, tiny cave. There were probably multiple caves in the region of Agilom, which is actually a place that we first learn about all the way back in Genesis 38. But it's talking specifically about the cave. There would have been a specific one that people would have known that maybe people would have gone to find refuge. It was a, it was a special cave that was maybe deeper down into this solid rock. You could hide. Um, 
Imagine, though, that like, this would have been something that people would have known about. Maybe they would have even dug it out. Limestone caves all around the world are actually oftentimes dug out for various purposes. Um, some of you maybe have seen pictures of the, the ear of Dionysius on Sicily. It's an enormous 70 um, feet high dug out cave into the limestone. We're not really sure why it was dug out, but it keeps going back into this limestone a long ways. Um, some of you, have any of you been to Mammoth Caves in Kentucky? Maybe a couple of you have been to Mammoth Caves in Kentucky. That is the largest uh, limestone cave in the world. And people say that it's 400 miles of caves in Mammoth Caves. Okay. So this is a limestone cave in Israel. Um, and it would have been a place, the cave would have been a place where people knew they could go hide. What I'm suggesting to you is that he is in the place of refuge, right? And actually what we find out is that God did meet him there and he brought other people to him, his family and his mighty men. They came to meet him there at the cave of Agilim. But what he ultimately says is, this is not my refuge. You're my refuge. He says, for in you, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. Just after he'd mentioned the cave. To quote um, this well-known commentator, Derek Kidner, he says this, you see, solid rock even by itself can be a trap as well as a stronghold. Even the places that we seek refuge can be traps as well as strongholds. Um, let me give you an example, something I've mentioned at least once before to you. Uh, a friend of mine was uh, in my Bible study as a, as a freshman in college at Western Washington University. And, and we also played on some intramural soccer teams together. He was really good at soccer. And a few years after I graduated, uh, I learned that he, in a soccer game, had injured his knee really badly. He had actually married another one of my good friends, but he had injured his knee and he actually needed surgery. And he got some pain medication after this surgery for the sake of his knee. Well, you know what happened. This place that he went for refuge in the midst of that pain actually became a deep addiction. And what happened is that his wife eventually found stacks of credit card statements that he had maxed out, new credit cards that he had opened up, just tons and tons of debt so that he could get more pain medication. The very thing he went to for refuge in the midst of that pain, saying, be merciful to me and save me from this, became the actual thing that led to their own divorce uh, the next year. What I'm suggesting to you is any other refuge, even possibly good refuge, refuges, refuge, places of refuge, like the cave, can actually be to your detriment. God alone is your salvation. Think about this. We all know that some of us, and probably all of us at times, take refuge in things like substances and food and exercise. Let's just exercise enough to not think about something. Or let me just read a book. Um, good things can become places where we actually run to instead of the Lord. And he's saying no other place will be your salvation. In you alone is my refuge. Um, you know this. You know, the, the devil never creates in the Bible. You cannot find the devil creating. You can find him distorting good things. 
And a lot of times you might run to a good thing to find your refuge from this situation where something's happening. You're like, I need to get away from that. And you run to this good thing. And then that good thing, you think it's just going to feed you and it's going to save you. And it becomes your very destruction. And I think this is why actually we have this refrain in verse 5 and then again in verse 11. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Because he's saying, let me see that you're actually above all of these things. Let me see that you're above these people that are running after me, these individuals and these groups, and even the places where I'm going for refuge. Let me see that you're more weighty. You're more glorious than all these other things. That your salvation can actually be for me. That you exist outside of the realm of this place. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let me look to you alone for salvation and show yourself. Show yourself to be the one who can, can show up and save. Be my solid rock, because even the solid rock, as Kinner said, can be a trap as well as a stronghold, the solid rock of, that we look to in this life. Okay, I want to move from this idea in this passage that it's saying we need salvation to we need to sing. And this is a move that's very common in the Psalms. Uh, a lot of the Psalms actually speak specifically about singing and praising and lifting up your voices to the Lord. And I'm going to make this pretty short. Um, let me start with this. Uh, how many of you, other than my wife, have heard of the, the earthquake game in college football? The earthquake game? All right. It's okay. You're going to learn about it today. Um, so the earthquake game took place on October 8th in 1988, and it was a game between, at the time, undefeated Auburn University, uh, where Malise spent one year, and LSU Tigers, which is our, the far superior team. Amen. Um, and this game, was, this, this game was really interesting because it's absolutely dominated by defense. Um, in the first half, LSU only managed to get one drive that was over 10 yards long. They only had one first down the whole first half. Um, the score after the first half was actually only one field goal that was scored in the last two minutes by the Auburn kicker. And then actually the, up until almost the very end of the second half, the, the score was just 6-0 to zero because that same kicker got one more field goal for Auburn. Um, so here's how it goes. Okay, Auburn is, is ahead by 6-0 to zero, with less than two minutes left in the fourth quarter. Um, and LSU's quarterback, Tommy Hodson, uh, drove the team down to the field before throwing an 11-yard touchdown pass, and he wins the game. Now, here's what happens. Last minute, when you think there's no way we're going to win this, we have had one down that's gotten more than 10 yards. We've had one first down, and it's 6-0. to zero. We haven't been able to make anything happen, and then they finally make it happen at the end. What does a crowd do? At Tiger Stadium in Baton Rouge, when that touchdown happens, they go crazy, right? You know exactly how this is. I know all of you know experiences in your life where you're like, wow, we were saved. We made it. We, as if we threw the ball, <laughs> right? Here's what I'm saying you cannot help but sing. 
you cannot help but sing and cheer and be enthralled by this amazing thing that happens. And so here's actually what happens, right? Um, the crowd goes crazy so much that there is an earthquake registered on a seismograph located a 1,000 feet from the stadium at the Howe Russell Geoscience Complex. It is literally, the Richter scale goes off because of what happened in that game. It's amazing. You cannot help but sing. Christians have always been a singing people. Did you hear, um, did you hear Don read from Exodus 15? Did you know the context of this song? They have just been brought out from Egypt. They've made their way to the Red Sea and they're like, well, there's no way. There's this one dude, Pharaoh, coming after us. And then there's this whole group of chariots and riders who are coming after us. There's no way. We're doomed. God makes a way right through the Red Sea. And they get to the other side of the sea and what do they do? They sing. Because God alone is their refuge. The only hope in this life. Of course we're going to sing. Grab a tambourine. Come on. And in case you're wondering, it's not just Mary Men, actually, the ladies who are dancing. If you know the whole chapter, actually, that's the, that's the last part after everybody else has been singing. They just keep singing. They're like, wait, we stopped? Let's grab some more tambourines and keep going. Um, okay, this is the movement in Scripture time and time and time again. And, of course, it's the movement here in this psalm. Um, I mean, it says, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing, make melody, awake, my glory, awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, actually says, in reference to this psalm, that it was raucous. He actually says, he was in the Church of England, he says, us Anglicans aren't very good at being raucous. He says, we should learn something from the Orthodox and the Catholics. And I was like, I don't know what he's talking about. Maybe we need to learn something from the Pentecostals or something. Um, but he says, the point is that the Psalms often make this move to something that's loud crashing cymbals, multiple instruments coming together and saying, let's sing, let's create an earthquake because of what God has done. Okay. Now I want to... Um, so, so I want you to see that this psalm actually says that we need salvation. It's only found in the true refuge of God. And that that leads us to the need for singing. But I want to end with this. And I want, I want to end with this idea that our Lord Jesus is the great song leader. Okay, we saw that in Zephaniah 3 and I want to read that again. But I want you to notice actually how, um, this is something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer mentions quite a bit. How Jesus is the first person and the primary person that can say every single one of the Psalms. They're first true of him before he leads us, okay? So look with me down at verse 6. It says this, they, they set a net for my steps. Meaning, there's a group of people that are out to get you. Um, my soul was bowed down. I mean, I'm picturing Jesus sweating blood, saying, Lord, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Because he knows they're prowling around like lions. They dug a pit in my way. They're saying, we've got him. He is in the grave. He's done with. And it says, but they've fallen into it themselves. The tables turn. God doesn't stay in the grave. 
that he comes up from the grave. What I'm suggesting to you is that Jesus can first sing this song even better than we can. And it's partly because of that that he also becomes this great worship leader that leads all of God's people together, praising, singing, lifting their voices up. Because Satan, sin, and death, and all the enemies, and all the places we look to refuge other than God, none of these places are anything compared to the one whose glory is exalted above the heavens and whose glory is over the earth. And so Jesus, we would say, is the great song leader in Psalm, or Zephaniah 3 saying, well, this, let me read this again. The Lord your God's in your midst. He's a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with singing. The Lord has become our salvation. And because of that, he's also our great song leader. Let me end with that. Let's pray. Lord God, Jesus, we bless you and we praise you that you know the experience of having enemies far worse than Saul or far worse than the Philistines or the Ziphites or Doeg with all of his crowd. Um, God, we think of how utterly destructive those kinds of people are. We think of how destructive abusive uh, spiritual churches are, uh, leaders who have used their power to the detriment of their people, um, and all whole groups of people who have led others astray. God, we think of how much we even need saving from the places that we look to for refuge, things that are good that we've twisted to look to for our salvation, and how you alone are our salvation. Lord Jesus, we thank you that this psalm can first be sung by you, that you know this experience perfectly, that you lived it perfectly, that the Father had his perfect hand over you. Lord Jesus, that you went down to the pit, and yet it was they who fell into it. You rose again to new life. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're the great song leader who leads your people in, in singing. God, I pray for our church. Lord, would you make us a people that lay all of our being before you, all of our enemies and our situations and and our places even that we go to for refuge other than you, lay them before you, Lord, and then, Lord, be led by you in singing. God, we bless you and we thank you for the Psalms. Lord, we pray that for this summer as we sit in them, that our hearts might be stirred in greater love for you, that we might lay our whole lives before you, that we might find it our great joy to do so. Lord, we're thankful, Lord, for the Psalms. We thank you that they invite us into this deep and rich and full uh, life with you. God, we pray that we might run in that, in that way. Uh, bless us to now, bless us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m., you can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.